words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So as you listen to that uh, gospel reading, saw some great faces on you, uh, what stood out for you? What did you hear? What did you see? And so what? I invite you to turn to your neighbours and have a conversation about that. What stood out for you? What did you hear? What did you see? So what? Have a conversation. <coughs> Oh, they've clearly been reading my, the pew sheet comments. <laughs> All right. So let's have a conversation about that. What stood out for you? Daunting. Yep. And a part we need to remember this is Jesus talking about in the temple, talking about the destruction of the temple, but Luke was writing after the destruction of the temple. So Jesus speaking about it and Luke's recording of it straddle that calamitous event. And we can't underestimate how calamitous that event was. Because in Luke's gospel, the, the temple is central. Like, we tend to think that the temple, the, of the temple is a negative thing, but in Luke's gospel, it's a very positive place. Temple leadership is a different matter, but the temple itself, Jesus teaches there, the disciples teach there, the early church is based there, so the destruction of the temple was horrific. What did that mean? So, it is daunting, but the people who were listening to that story had lived through not only the destruction of the temple, but the slaughter of tens if not hundreds of thousands of people and the enslavement of much of the rest of the Jewish people of, of Palestine. So um, they'd lived through some pretty hard times and we're still living through hard times. What else? Can't have been the only thing that stood out for you. Anything else? I'm quite sure I wouldn't, <coughs> I wouldn't face up to being tortured or anything for my faith. I would run away. Right. And people did. <coughs> anything else? Well, wars and natural disasters seem to be getting uh, more problematic as the years go by. They do. And that's exactly what they said in the gospel there. Although, weirdly, last century was one of the most peaceful centuries on record. Which is a bit weird given we had two world wars. But they were both relatively short. So, there's been wars around for a long time. We're very good at fighting. But there are the 30 years war and the 100 years wars in European history. So a five year war is kind of quite short and quick. Nasty, but... Some of those wars are quite nasty too. Uh, I've talked a bit um, over the last six or seven years about how the maps we use as church don't work anymore. The world has changed and our maps were for a different world. 
And one of the things that has changed is we have moved from a modern world to a postmodern world. And that means that some of the assumptions and philosophical pillars that hold up our understanding of how the world works have changed. Now, one of those pillars was uh, came about with the invention of science in the West. And one of the things about science was that truth became, so truth was quite a broad concept, something was true because it was true, and it became something was true because it was a fact. And a fact was established by objective observers being able to see it and say, this is what happened. So that's basically how science works at some level. You come up with a question, you design a test, and then you see whether that hypothesis is true or not, and the scientist who is observing that is deemed to be objective. But then along came quantum physics, and a lot of these things got kind of questioned. And one of them was, is there such a thing as an objective observer? And light is one of the great examples of that. If you are a scientist and you think that light is a wave, and you design a whole lot of experiments to look at light as a wave and to describe the properties of light as a wave, you will see light as a wave. And you will be able to describe all the properties of light as a wave. But if you're a scientist that believes that light is a particle, and if you design your experiments to explore whether light is a particle and what the properties of light as a particle is, you will see light as a particle. And you will be able to describe the properties of light as a particle. So who's right? Well, they're both right. It just depends on where you stand. It depends on the questions you ask and what you're looking for and how you look for it. There is no such thing as an objective observer. We always bring a certain amount of assumptions to us, even when we think we're being objective. And so that's had a revolution in social research, in theology. So my daughter's currently writing a thesis for clinical psychology, and part of that is she has to say, this is where I stand, this is how I see the world, this is what I'm looking for, this is how I'm looking for it. This is what I saw, but she has to acknowledge that somebody else who comes from a different background, asking slightly different questions, would actually see something completely different in exactly the same situation. So, the objective observer thing is, uh, is under question. But we as a church still work on the theory that there is one truth, and... That's established by facts. And that has changed how we read the Bible, for better and for worse. So we can apply that to this reading. So, for example, we have... I put the widow in at the beginning because a lot of the commentators talked about it. I'm interested that none of you picked up on the widow. But a lot of commentators said, these two stories have been placed side by side. Luke wasn't writing a history. He wasn't writing a biography. He deliberately put the story of the widow right before the commentary about the temple. So, for me, the widow stands out, and it's part of one of the big things of Luke 
which is the themes of Luke, which is Jesus makes people visible. He makes tax collectors visible. He makes sinners visible. He makes poor people visible. He made this widow visible. Now all of these people were invisible, unseen, and in many ways deemed outside the circle of compassion for God. God does not care about those people. God cares about wealthy people. But Jesus kept making those people visible, and in making them visible, made a way back for them into the community life, so that they became people again. So the first thing he does in the story is he makes someone visible. So from the point of view of the big themes, if I look at that and say, so what are the big themes? I can say one of the big themes is making people visible. Jesus makes this person visible. That's the first thing. The second thing is, if I put on my social, if I think about God's justice, and I say, well, what does this say about God's justice? Well, these two stories are put together for a reason. Because the people go on immediately to say, look at this amazing place with all its great things dedicated to God. Herod's done a magnificent job refurbishing it. It's just astounding. Takes your breath away. Well, who paid for that? Who paid the price for that temple? Was it the wealthy people? Well, Jesus just said that when they gave, they gave out of their abundance. That temple was built on the back of the poverty of the poorest people who were impoverished by the taxes imposed by Rome and by Herod. And those taxes were then used to pay for the temple. And through their incredibly generous gifting of everything they had to the temple. So that magnificent edifice is built on their poverty. And you can read that and say, well, those two stories are put together for people to look at that and say, that's an unjust way of doing things. And then the so what is, so the so what for the first one was, so who are the invisible people in the world that I need to look, kind of see and help make visible? This, and this one is, so where do I see that happening in the world? Well, the great example of that is Trump and his wealthy Republican friends who gave themselves and large corporations massive tax cuts. And now they have the problem of how do they pay for that? And Mitch McConnell's solution to that is let's cut Social Security and Medicaid. The poorest, the least able to afford it, will pay for that. And that's easy to look at because it's overseas and it doesn't affect me. But then the next question is where does that happen in this country? Where do we make the poorest pay? I'll let you work that out for yourself. So, most of you focused on the tricky bit in the middle, which is written in what's called apocalyptic literature. So, uh, apocalyptic literature is a style of writing. Daniel is one of the first examples of that in the Bible. The book of Revelation is probably one of the best known and one of the last in the Bible. And because of that, truth is fact and we established fact by objective observers, apocalyptic literature has become either a description of what has happened in the past, so you read Daniel and think, well, that's exactly what happened, 
Daniel on the lion's den and all of that, for that to be true, that needed to have happened. Or it becomes a predictor of the future. So apocalyptic literature is generally read as an accurate prediction of what is going to happen. Only since the modern times, not before that, just to be clear. Uh, so if we read that from that point of view, then this becomes a prediction. And David talked about that. This is becoming a prediction of what is going to happen. So that is one way of reading it, and lots of people do read it. So they are looking for how does this passage uh, get lived out? Is this now the time, the end? And that was one of the big questions. Let's face it, if you have lived through the calamity of the fall of the temple, that feels like the end of the world. And so then you're asking, so now is the time for Christ to return. Now is the time for Christ to return. Now is the time for Christ to return. But 15 years later or 20 years later, still hasn't returned. 2,000 years later, still hasn't returned. So, so this is Luke's response to that. And you know, like people like to think about what the end is. We have the Christians who are looking for the end of time and how they might encourage that. Let's start World War III in Israel. There are Christians who are trying to do that. Then Jesus will come. We don't have to care about climate change because then Jesus will come. Uh, and then on the other end, we have all the people who think the zombie apocalypse is about to hit us and are planning for that. So, uh, you know, end time stuff is whether we describe it as end times or not. So we can read it from an end time point of view. And lots of people do. And some of you did, I think, from your faces. And I have in the past. But actually, that's not the only way you can read apocalyptic literature. It wasn't necessarily, in fact, it wasn't at all a prediction about what was going to happen. It was a style of literature that shook you up. And it shook you up, didn't it? And it made you question the status quo. And it actually helped you think about where is God in all of this bad stuff? Not a prediction of what's going to happen, but where is God in all of this? Where is God in all of this? It helps people think about keeping trust in God even in the darkest of times. Knowing that God is present even in the darkest of times. And keeping an eye out for where God is at work even in the darkest of times. And they lived in the darkest of times. So, where is God at work? That would be another question we could apply to this reading. Where is God at work in our times? And so we can go back to this text and ask that question. And say, where is God at work? And one of the ways that Jesus answers that, and all the Gospel writers answer that, is... By talking about the kingdom of God, the reign of God, which in Luke's gospel, we could say that Jesus makes that visible. He makes invisible people visible. He makes the reign of God visible. That is one of the big themes of Luke. So where does he make that visible? Well, he does make the reign of God visible when he makes invisible people visible. That's the reign of God at work. But he also makes the reign of God visible when he treats those deemed beyond God's compassion 
with compassion. The Samaritan, the lepers, the tax collector. When he accepts hospitality or offers hospitality to those deemed beyond God's care and compassion. And in doing so, honours and blesses them. That's those people being made visible and those people and the reign of God being made visible. When he lives justice for those that were deemed beyond God's justice, like Samaritans, they are accursed. How could you possibly use them as heroes in your stories? How could you possibly use them as a model for how to praise God? Jesus does that. And so in this story, how does he make the reign of God visible? Well, he starts off by making the widow visible. The very first thing he does, look at that widow. I bet none of the people who were with him had seen the widow. They were looking at the rich Pharisee, giving everything that he was given. Not at the widow. Pay attention to the widow. And while the disciples are marvelling at the grandeur of the temple... And I get that. I mean, I go to New York and I marvel at some of the grandeur of the buildings there and some of the other things. Jesus responds with, don't get distracted by all this grandeur. It will fall. It has a limited time frame. It's temporary. But also, don't get distracted by the looming calamity. Like, there's lots of Christians who get distracted by the looming calamity. Like, that becomes their focus. Don't get distracted by wars. Wars happen. Famines happen. Natural disasters happen. They're doing a really good job at making them worse, but they happen. Don't even get distracted by your own fate. Instead, pay attention to the reign of God. Pay attention to the outbreaks of compassion and hospitality and generosity and justice. Pay attention to the outbreaks of the way of God in the world around us. When all seems lost, pay attention to life, not brokenness. Pay attention to God, always present in our world. Pay attention to God. That's another way of reading this lesson. So we have... We live in a world with much to terrify and distract, with much brokenness. Not being distracted is not the same as ignoring it. But it does mean not being weighed down by it. So, it's what you two were talking about, being weighed down by it. The warning is don't be weighed down by that. Instead, live another way. Live God's way. Look for the outbreaks of God's reign in our world and join in that work. So instead, we're invited to pay attention to the signs of wholeness of life, of hope, and to join that work. So, there's a number of ways of asking different questions of the same passage and coming up with different answers. So I'll go back to my first question. 
What stood out for you in that reading? What did you hear? What did you see? And what are you going to do about it? Turn around, talk to your neighbours for a moment. And then we'll say a creed.